0: we just pray as the young people are leaving and um, we'll go into today's teaching from the Messy Church series. Father God, you, you said in your word and showed us in your word that habits are important. And Lord, help us to cultivate godly habits with our life so that we might bear fruit in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we begin our passage uh, it's quite a while since I taught on baby Christians from First Corinthians 3. We need to take a few pl- preliminary hit readings that will introduce the subject before we read our main text, which is verses 10 to 15 of First, first Corinthians 3. And I um, just want to s- cite what's on the screen. The, m- the message title is Built to Last for Eternity, uh, but it, if you want it in other language, it's The Judgment Seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. So first of all, let me read 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. It says, for we, speaking to Christians, for we must all, it's a pretty inclusive phrase, isn't it? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each of us may receive what is due for us for the things done while well in the body, whether good or bad. Then going back a couple of books to the book of Romans, chapter 14, uh, the same as the verse we've just read, same sort of idea, but it's lifted out of the context of Paul rebuking Christians for judging their brothers and sisters in the church. And he puts it within the context of the judgment seat of Christ. He says, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all, again, same phrase, we will all... Stand before God's judgment seat. So then one more reading before we get into the main material, main text. Um, revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. The Lord Jesus is now speaking in his revelation to John. Look, says Jesus, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me. And I will give to each person according to what they have done. Do you see the individual nature of the rewards of Jesus pertain to you and you alone, me and me alone. You can't, in this study together today, look around the room. You have to look at your own heart, as I had to look at my own heart in the preparation of this message. So let's now turn to 1 Corinthians 3, for those who do have the Bible or a Bible app, verses 10 to 15. You may remember in the message church, Message last time I was talking about the difference between carnal and spiritual Christians, baby Christians versus people who have the spirit and walk in step with the spirit. There are two kinds of Christians in Paul's understanding. Today we'll go on from verse nine. Flowing out of that idea of going on to maturity, there's a shift of metaphor from farming to building. And ostensibly, for people like John Bordy and others who have been involved in building and joinery, they'll really relate to the thematic understanding of this, that it's related to building a structure. Verse 9 says in 1 Corinthians 3, For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. Let no one For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation, this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day capitalized, repeating theme from the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what they have built survives the flamethrower test, my words, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Now, it's very easy to think uh, like this in a negative mindset that the Christian work is challenging and we can become discouraged easily and it's very easy as a Christian to become negative about ourselves and one another. We live in difficult times and you can easily become very negative and discouraged. Since the COVID pandemic, most churches have experienced, and I talk to a lot of church leaders, huge challenges in congregational numbers, church income and volunteer numbers. It's epidemic. It's as if COVID has reversed the church on the road. It was traveling along, and we all need to catch up, but with a sense of much less energy. Do you feel that? Most people feel less energized post-COVID. It can feel overwhelming at times, this rebuilding work, as we emerge from COVID. Even though I predicted we'd be flowing again in 2023, in June of 2020... I've got to admit to you that it's not an easy thing to continue walking. We are flowing. We are moving. There's a sense of the flow of the Spirit this morning, like we've not had for a while. It was great. But building for God is exhausting. That's why it says in the Bible, don't be weary in well-doing, because you can become weary. For in due time, we will reap a harvest if we do not faint. There is a need for endurance, which was partly Sue's testimony this morning at the start of the service. I think just as a side point from a message that God wanted us to get the memo in COVID and post-COVID realities that we have to learn to lead, lean on the Lord for his resources, that God wants a dependence like never before, and maybe that was partly the reason for the season that God allowed it. Everything in life is father filtered, otherwise he ceases to be almighty God. And so are you as a side point from the message leaning on heaven's resources. That said, there's a deeper problem, back to the flow of thought, there's a deeper problem than the current post-pandemic state of the church. Leaders leaders, and laities alike are asking in most UK churches, why are we crying out for volunteers? Common theme in Elam. Common, common theme in evangelical leaders, I know. Common theme in Methodist churches, Baptist churches, and so on. It is a dearth post-COVID of what it was pre-COVID. If I compare them I remember being challenged by um, Gavin Calver when he came to us privately over a meal. When I was telling him about, so I contrasting the pre- and post-COVID realities for Family Church, he said, you sounded like somebody emerging from the Second World War telling a story. You can only deal with what you've got now. Stop moaning about what, what's happened and built. And it was such a great and a gentle rebuke that it would come across as true to us all, I think. But people are asking, why why are we struggling for volunteers? Why is the mission field crying out for missionaries? Why to uh, church pulpits crying out for preachers, pastors and teachers? I'm thinking in terms of national, perhaps international picture here. I think the crux of it all, and there's a fundamental problem here, it has a common denominator. Now, I don't want you to... I think I'm as silly as to say there's only just one factor as to why the church is in the state it's in post-COVID or as we emerge from what COVID did to the world. But I believe certainly it's part of the problem that the Church of Jesus Christ, especially in the UK, has lost one thing. It's lost, listen to me now, it's lost the true vision of what the judgment seat of Christ really is for the believer. Now, know what I say about true vision because there are extremes on this teaching. There's three major views on it and I would encourage you when there are extremes to take a centrist position. For some who read these passages on the the judgment seat of Christ, there'll be like a Sunday school prize giving. Everybody in across the room gets a well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of the Lord, you're amazing. Well, I know that there is that with the sheep and the goats in Jesus' teaching in the gospels and enter into the joy of the Lord, and there is heaven for all who believe, and we're not talking here about a salvation issue, but in the teaching of the judgment seat of Christ, to say it's just a Sunday school prize giving misses the wider teaching of scriptures, which are explicit on this point. Nor is it, as some in extreme views present, this idea that the Christian is susceptible to punishment. Can you believe that? There are some Christian views that see at the judgment seat of Christ that the Christian is going to be punished for their failure and their performance review, which is essentially what it is. What that does is it devalues the cross. A Jesus who took our judgment upon himself has paid the price for your sin. Your life is under the blood of Jesus. But their centrist position is realistic enough to acknowledge that one day everything will be laid bare before the holy eyes of Jesus Christ, and we will give an account for every thought, word and deed. And for those of us like myself and other leaders James 3:1, Hebrews 13, 7 and 17 they will receive a stricter judgment. We're also concerned about the behavior of leaders fail to recognize that leaders who know their word know that their heart has to be clean before God. And they have to do everything in the flow of what they believe God is asking them to do, which is what it is to be a disciple. And so let's go on in this teaching because it's essential learning for us all. I believe it's the great Motivator, not out of fear, but to know that whatever you do in this life echoes in eternity, to quote the Gladiator movie. Um, Jim Elliott, the Ecuadorian missionary, only one life soon will be passed. No, not that CT stud, isn't it? Only one life soon will be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Jim Elliott said, it's not a fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's a similar idea of laying your life down for Jesus, living in the light of eternity. Please be careful with this teaching. Some Christians lump it together with the general judgment. It is not the same as the great white throne. It is the beamer seat of Jesus Christ. And understanding that should help us move into a place where we know everything we do in this life matters. Everything. Everything. The problem with a lot of Christians, I think, is that they get saved and they believe, as I do, and some Christians don't believe this, but I do, in the great doctrine of eternal security. And they believe that once they're saved and they're always saved, they can live however they want under grace. They can continue with a life of habitual sin, which is contrary to the word of God. And when I see this as a church leader, as an understanding, not so much as a practice, I think from wrong motives, a good dose of saved and lost theology would do them a bit of good. Now, there are Christians who believe in a can be saved, can be lost theology, and we must give room for that worldview because. To be dogmatic and say, I have the truth, is to miss the spectrum of truth. Trying to define that which is to get in the headspace of God. And the saved and lost debate can't get into the headspace of God. God is judged. Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. And nobody has known the mind of the Lord that we might instruct him. But the reality is, the holiness movement and those adhere to the doctrine of saved and lost are some of the most sanctified people on planet earth. those who adhere to the concept of eternal security like myself and this will mess with some of your heads I'm not a Calvinist (laughs) some people are going need to ask themselves is there something missing in their theology that can guard against the mistake of professing Christ and then thinking you can live however you like under grace I believe there is I believe this is the missing piece. Aside from the operation and mentoring of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life, I believed that the idea of being accountable to God at the judgment seat should be the great motivator for the way we live and walk and work in this life. There is a judgment seat of Christ coming for all of you who believed, as we've read from various texts and the key texts that we've read today in 1 Corinthians 3. We must all, all, all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So that's who it's for, believers, not for punishment but for reward. When is it? We might love it, look at Revelation 19, 20, 22, the ideas of the rapture, the ideas of the millennium, the ideas of you could get lost in end times theology on this and again a spectrum of ideas. We have to say we're not certain. I would sit with the amillennials who kind of say Gee, when Jesus turns up he burns up but I'm sympathetic towards premillennial ideas that There is a time when Jesus returns and the saints are raptured to be with the Lord. There'll be people in the church with that idea. I don't believe in the hidden rapture of the saints, which is called dispensational premillennialism. If you switch off now, it's fine. Some people, this will do them good. I I believe in the historic premillennialism as being a possibility in terms of the ideas of Jesus' return and the raptured saints or the resurrected righteous before the age of of the millennium regardless of whether that came across as speaking Latin or Spanish or whatever it sounded like to you the reality is Jesus is coming back and he's going to judge the living and the dead he's going to separate the sheep and the goats whatever your theological worldview and he's going to reward the righteous for their behaviors and he's going to judge and condemn those who are condemned already to quote Jesus for eternity in hell without Christ this is what the scriptures teach and I sustain that across all the worldviews. the only End times worldview I can't abide with, and this is very common in revival times, is post-millennialism, this idea of a triumphalistic church that grows and grows and grows, like the tree that was once a seed, fills the world and takes over the world in a positivity that we've never seen, kind of heaven on earth stuff. I think there's far too much that points against that in the scriptures, but I can see why in times of revival that becomes the church's um, favourite flavour of theology. We were in a side alleyway there on theology. Let's get it back onto the teaching. As I've written in my notes, there are too many views to go here on this one. That said, church, who would in this room say that they're looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the way it ought to be, actually. Every day, looking out of the window, expecting, Lord, today, perhaps, today, Lord, maybe today you'll come back. That's the heart that says, with the spirit. That's the bride's heart. The spirit and the bride say, come, Lord Jesus. And this is a healthy heart before the Lord. So if you've got that heart, you can give yourself a badge. Not for anyone else to say, yes, there's at least one thing that's right in my life. I'm looking forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to reign in power and glory. But never forget, in all the euphoria and ecstasy that surrounds that teaching about the return of the Lord, when we're changed in a twinkling of an eye, and taken up to be with the Lord, we will be in the air for the divine tribunal at that point, whatever your theological view for the end times. We will have a tribunal which is individual, all of us, before the Lord, and you won't stand with your relatives or with your pastor or whoever. You'll stand on your own. And the question we we are needing to ask, are you looking forward to the return of the Lord, needs a second question. Are you looking forward to that divine tribunal where you stand before the Lord naked and exposed? before the eyes of whom we must give an account. I've I've talked about who is it for, the believers, when will it be at some point, (laughs) depending on your your theological worldview. Where will it be? Well, specifically the word for judgment seat is the word bima, which I've already mentioned. It was a raised platform in an athletics event at the Olympics or the Isthmian games that the Corinthians would have known about. Paul was often referencing cultural ideas. And at that place, the the word beamer seat literally means footstep. Footstep. As you step up onto the beamer seat, the judge or the umpire would give out the rewards for the athletic events first, second, third, as you would in a school sports day or a major athletics event. In other words, though, for the way we might apply that, for the Christian, whatever we've done historically, like the race, which is our metaphor here, whatever we've done, whenever we've gone... Whatever we've been, we'll all be scrutinised with the all-seeing eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ. As I've said, and I want to reiterate, it's in my notes, and I know I want to hammer it on for people to feel peaceful with God, because the Bible says in Romans 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, having been justified by faith, not by works, not by performance. I want to say, this is not a judgment upon your sins. The reason why I say that is 2,000 years ago, 30 AD or thereabouts, on a hill in Calvary, called Calvary, upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, taking away the sins of the world. On him our sins were judged. Christ died, and as a result of his death, we are justified. We are cleansed. We are made perfect in the sight of God presently, at the moment when Jesus cried, it is finished, that was worked for us, that we would benefit from it now. Amen? Did you hear what I was saying? I might have just rambled on. And You are clean because of the word Jesus spoke to you. Isn't it good to know that? I want to just pause on this point. You've got to know that. That is what it is to enter into the good news of the gospel, gospel for the Christians as well. You have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a true believer and you're out of sorts with the one who's justified you, he'll mentor you into righteousness and convict you concerning sin. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So if you're sitting fearful and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, don't be worrying about being judged. That will never happen. Are you happy about that? You don't sound, you don't look, that's really good news. Consider our performance. Your sins are under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's a danger that we don't realize as believers that even though we'll never be judged for our sins, the Bible is extremely and categorically clear that we will be judged upon our works. Not judged for salvation, but judged according to service. a lot of people have got a lot of problems with this in the church. And some of the Christian paperbacks that I've got on my shelf that are available today argue defiantly for the subject of grace, whereby it's impossible in their teaching to marry this principle together of being not judged for sin, but being judged for works. But those who write those hyper grace texts miss what the Bible teaches in the New Testament. Maybe you wonder this as well. Maybe you still don't get it. You might think, how can you be saved? And God accepts you no matter what you've done. Yet on the other side of the coin, although it's nothing to do with salvation, one day you're going to come before the Lord Jesus Christ and he's going to judge you according to your works. The works that you've done in the flesh, whether they're good or whether they're bad. Well, one of the theologians that many of these people that believe in such a strong view of grace, one of their pet theologians, in fact, John Calvin, who was one of the greatest ever of the Reformation, said the following about this matter. There is no inconsistency, said Calvin, in saying that God rewards good works, provided we understand that nevertheless, men obtain eternal life gratuitously. Gratuitously. In other words, did you get that? There's no contradiction as long as we can see in our minds that to be saved, to get eternal life, which God gives us freely, that means he gives it to us and expects nothing back. He indulges in salvation with grace no matter what we do. He asks nothing in return, but here we go, church. But when it comes to our service, there's a difference in the matter, and he will judge us according to our works. Now, already in this chapter, he's been using illustrations of a farmer, Paul. He's already talked about how he went out and planted the seed he sowed a polis built on it watered the seed and then god gave the increase he's been using how he's been using how the christian servant and individual christians are like farmers and now he comes to another analogy analogy and he talks about a building verse 9 and we're going to just go through these points as quickly as i can The labor of verse 10, the foundation of verse 11, the excavation of verses 10 and 11, the materials of verse 12, the divine inspection of verses 13 to 15. He says in verse 9, and we go with the first point, you are God's building. What is he saying in this analogy? He's saying, be careful how you build your building. So listen, family church, this morning, Paul is saying to us as a church, to pastors and elders, to church members, be careful how you build the building. Now, not the building across the street, the building that is the church of God. Living stones, people, be careful how you do it. Then he hon- and then he hones in in his reading. And we can apply it as individuals in this way. He says to you, the congregation, and to me as an individual, be careful how you build your own personal building, your personal life with God. Why Why be careful? Because there's a day that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to come and scrutinize how we've built the building of family church. For me as a leader, for the elders, pastors, but for you as an individual who are not in leadership, he's going to come, and scrutinize your life to see how you've built your personal building that follows after Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing in Paul's analogies, it says on the board, is the labor. By the grace of God, it says in verse 10, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one, here we go, should build with care. Now, the whole Bible is full, the New Testament especially, of analogies and illustrations of Christians as people who are expending themselves and putting all their energy into the Christian life. Now, you can't miss that as you read through the scriptures. You can't miss it. You get the picture of a runner running a race. Wave at me if you've read these texts. You get a picture of an athletic event, you get a picture of an athlete wrestling, the idea of a boxer, you get the idea of a warrior fighting until he wins in the battle, you get the chapter itself of farming and sowing, you get that in the Old Testament, the New Testament, you get a mason, a builder building in places, you've got a picture of a fugitive fleeing for his life and existence. In other, in other passages in the Bible, you've got a besieger coming and storming the heavens for the riches that are available for him. In all those analogies in the Bible, and we could list more, there is this sense of strenuous activity. Why? Because the Bible says in Hebrews 11, God rewards those who diligently seek him and serve him. There is something of a life laid down call on every Christian, every day of their life, that Jesus said, as he said to his early followers, you come, follow me, take up your cross, live A divine sacrificial life that the world will not understand. For we're not to become like the world, we're to be transformed, as the kids are learning today, by the renewing of our mind that we may prove that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek and serve Him. So listen, banish the thought, banish the thought that there is a type of conceivable Christian existence that means you're saved. And you do nothing for Christ. There's no such thing. I'm saved. I'm going to party and just bask in his grace. That's not the Christian life. I'm not saying you can't be saved and be static. There's lots of Christians who are saved and just don't progress. They don't mature to flow from the baby Christians idea that you just taught in chapter 3. That's not what we're reading about, the carnal Christians we mentioned in the last study. But what I'm saying is that... It's not the perfect mind of God for you to stay and be static. That's not what God wants for you as a Christian. Rather, God wants you to be a labourer with him. He uses the phrase co-laborer, actually, in this passage. And the sense of this illustration in the verse is, here you go, a life builder. God wants you to be a life builder in this church, a family church, if you're a member. And he also wants you to be a life builder in your own personal journey with the Lord Jesus, Building up yourself for God. Remember the Bible says, building yourself, building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit. So let's move away from thinking that this is primarily to Christian workers and leaders. Professional Christian servants like missionaries, pastors, evangelists, teachers, and people that are on pay- payroll of some kind. As we've said many times already in this teaching, this is for all Christians. That has got nothing to do with the idea of being on payroll special ones, as if there were such a thing. This is for every believer, everyone who's a child of God. It says, therefore, the spirit of the living God says to you this morning, as it is through the Apostle Paul, take heed, you, me, of how you build. Don't look around the room. Don't think about anyone else. You can do nothing about that. It's only about you, this passage. Now, this is my question before I go any further this morning. Are you careful? Am I careful how you're building up your life? How careful are you? Or are you careless at the moment? Do you give any thought to the fact that you are creating a building to the glory of God? Or at least you're meant to be. One day that building is going to be scrutinized and analyzed by the Son of God. Are you diligent making your living? Or are you diligent making a life, building it for God? I would be bold enough, actually, to say this morning that if you're not, it's because you're not living in the light of eternity. If you're not living in the light of eternity, you'll live differently to this, the diligent, strenuous service of the Lord. And if you're not living in the light of eternity, it's probably because you've got an ignored or faulty perception of the judgment seat of Christ. You might be aware of it, but not live in the benefit of it. So... The first thing I want to say to you this morning on those points is that you've got to be a labourer with an eternal perspective. Number two, verse 11, we look at the foundation now. The second thing that Paul tells us is that he's already laid down for his church in Corinth, the foundation. Did you see what he said? He said, look, for no one can lay any other foundation other than the one that is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, we'd be tempted to think that Jesus is the master builder in this passage, but Paul labels himself as the master builder, and he as an apostle has made it clear what the church is built on. It's built on Jesus and his gospel. And the problem with what he was tackling in Corinth was that they were, I'm wiser than Paul, we follow Apollos, we follow Cephas, we follow Christ. There was rebellion against authority, apostolic authority, and there was division that always comes from rebellion. When, when you do not submit to headship in any place, it is rebellion and it creates division wherever it is in society and in the church categorically biblically that's the truth and so paul is challenging that and he's saying that's not the wisdom that i laid down but i laid it down for you as god's master builder that jesus christ is the foundation stone now the church generally speaking has laid down other foundations in recent years the evangelical, charismatic and Pentecostal churches are foundations of special and anointed leaders, special teachings, prophetic schemas. And all of these things can work to a level, but every one of us, whatever our flavour of Christianity, whatever church background we form, from, have to come back to the place where we say Jesus is the foundation for his church It's not special insights, it's not special leaders, it's not special schemes of work or prophetic understandings that I alluded to earlier. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's why Paul earlier says, I desired to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, this intelligent man that understood the scriptures. So that's it, that's the foundation stone. That's what we build our life upon. That's what this building's for. It's all about Jesus. Can I have an amen for at least that point? Amen. Amen. So beware and realise that in this age of epidemic confusion, that the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ has already been laid by the apostles and prophets and continues to be laid by every church that proclaims Christ as eternally God and eternally man, our Lord and Saviour, who died for the sins of the world and rose from the dead, who is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Amen. Do you know we can err in this? And we've got to be careful. Jesus is the center of it all. Do you remember that song? Jesus, you're the center of it all. You might not have heard it. All that's good and perfect comes from you. Roncanoli. I've not got the deep black voice. <laughs> Jesus, you're the center of it all. Jesus, you're the center of it all. I love Broncanoli. Bless him. But it's true. Jesus is the center of it all. And that's what the Corinthians needed to hear. It's not about Paul. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Cephas. It's not about, the found, it's not about the foundation that they think with their wisdom. But it's the fact that Jesus is Lord and we're building on him. Let's take this a step further because this isn't only fundamental for the church. It's fundamental for your own personal growth and life. If your life is to adequately stand before Christ at the judgment seat, you've got to build on Jesus Christ himself. Oh, I don't want to confuse the judgments this morning. We've already made a point about that. But I do want to say that if you don't stand and build your life on Jesus, you will not have a leg to stand on at the judgment. And I'm talking there at the general judgment, not the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. Is the only way to the Father. And if you don't build your life on him, you have no hope eternally. Jesus, Savior of the world, King of kings, Lord of Lords. Let me take this a step further even than that. This passage teaches us that you can stand on the foundation of Jesus Christ, but still not have a good building as a Christian. I bet you've seen wonky houses, particularly the builders join us in this room, badly built houses, things that don't work, and you look at it with your trained eyes and you think, oh my goodness, who built that shack? I wish I could have had a go at it. This is what Paul is saying, that there are differences in buildings. He's saying that there are problems for the Corinthians if they build with the wrong materials. We'll come to that. But let's mark at this point that you can be saved, you can be redeemed, you can be safe for all eternity, rescued and redeemed from the fires of hell, Standing in the promises of Christ, your king, through eternal ages, letting his praise ring through your life, but your building is actually derelict. That's why I believe that reading between the lies in these verses is what needs to happen. This, excavation. Third point. We've looked at how we are laborers and there needs to be a foundation, but there also needs to be excavation. Before you build on a foundation, you have to excavate the site. You have to get rid of the rocks and the rubble and the things that won't create a place to build a foundation on. You've got to break up the fallow ground to talk about Hosea's language. You've got to make it ready. When you first get saved, that's what you do. You dig up all the filthy habits, all the things that you know displease God. You take them to the Lord, who's full of mercy, love, and grace. And you say, Lord, I'm struggling to even take one step as a Christian. I cannot live the Christian life. And the Lord says, Good, you've got it. Now you can be saved. Because Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit or the spiritually poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you come to Christ, if you don't come that way as a sinner that need saving, you'll never come to the cross properly. It is by grace we're saved, but we've got to go via the cross. getting rid of the rocky ground to lay a perfect plot to build upon. But you know, sometimes as Christians, things can grow over the foundation. Have you read in the scriptures in Haggai, the exiles are building away their own little lives. They're returning and God rebukes them through a prophetic voice. Don't we love the prophets? Don't we love the prophetic voices from heaven that all speak exhortation, edification and encouragement and get right with God? Haggai said, this is what the Lord Almighty says. The time has come, you say, the people say that the time has come not to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai and he says this, is it time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while God's house lies in ruins? Now this is what the Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You Put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord, because of my house, which remains a ruin. While each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought, God called for a drought to force us back into his arms. On the, on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil and everything else that ground produces on people and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. God wanted to bring them back to priorities. What needed to happen was that all those weeds that are grown over the temple foundation needed to be excavated to be removed so God's house could be truly built. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask myself the same question. Where is the moss and the weeds in your life that hinder the building of God, his house, your personal dwelling place for the Lord, and this house in the church. Because God sees it all. Jesus in his parable about the new garment being sewed onto an old wineskin, he says, don't sew onto the old because it will tear away and the wine will burst out. In chapter 5 of Luke, he said, but God pours new wine into new wineskins. The picture is there of, say for example, you had a bad rip in a shirt, Jesus is saying, don't get new material and put the pit on the, on the shirt to repair it. Because eventually the tear will become worse and the old hole will emerge. He says, get yourself a new shirt. And this is true if you want to be saved in this room. There'll be people in this room potentially who are not saved. And they're on the way presently to hell. Presently to hell. Right now until they turn in the road and repent of their sin and surrender to Jesus who died on a cross for their sins. There may be people in this room. And By the way, I'm not pointing to no Paul Graham saved. He just happens to be in the middle of the church at the back. He's a man of God and he's big enough to take it. But it's a serious point. It's worth pausing on. Get yourself saved. Get to the place where you know when Jesus faces you and you will give an account to God, whether you're a saved saint or a sinner, on your way to hell, you'll stand before the Lord. And he's saying, get yourself a new shirt. Let me give you a new life. You cannot do the Christian life by your own self-effort. Equally, for the believer, there's a need to deal with the overgrown weeds, the foundation that we build our life, to find it again, to put Jesus at the center of our lives again, so that God can build on you and through you. You might think I'm reading too much into this, but you need to remember that when the Lord Jesus was talking about the wise man, And the foolish man in the Sermon on the Mount, he was talking to those who'd followed him. They wanted what he had. And he said, and I think it relates to believers too, if you don't dig down deep with your foundations till you come to the granite rock and build on that rock alone, when the storms come, your building will come down. I believe that primarily shows what the Lord is talking about. He was speaking of storms of judgment. And you know, judgment happens in this life. And in the life to come. There are Christians, the Bible says, in Peter's writing, it's time for judgment to begin in the house of the God. 1 Peter 4.19. Now. And he says, if it begins with us, what will happen to the ungodly and the sinner? In other words, the people who are going through stuff like Sue and others in this room, who are really suffering at the moment. That's a test of your faith. So that, again, in Peter's teaching, that when you come to the last days, what you may is prove that your faith is genuine and be found to praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed at the last day. And so there is a judgment before the judgment, but the judgment seat of Christ for the believers and the general judgment from believers is something to inform our choices now. So while we're on rocky foundation that is overgrown with sin and self-centeredness, Hosea would tell us with a farming analogy, sow for your self-righteousness, reap mercy, break up your fallow ground, or excavate, for it's time to seek the Lord till he comes to rain righteousness upon you, says Hosea. Sometimes we have to take a good hard look at our lives, our lives, not my life, your life individually, my life individually, and say, if the Lord were to come back now, what in your life, what in my life would you want to remove? What would I want to remove, should I say? What moss and weeds would you get rid of? What dirt and rubble would you fix? Because Jesus could come back at any time, I believe, in the season we're in. It may be that as believers, when we're contemplating the judgment seat of Christ, that we need to clear away all, those, all the nonsense of overgrown weeds in doing this. How do you do it? How do you get rid of the weeds? Confessing sin and forsaking it. Breaking spiritual bondages. Christians can be chained up through the giving ground to the enemy. Trust me, I've seen it many times over. Mental strongholds, the way you think about yourself might not be the way the Bible teaches about yourself. And you've got to renounce everything that causes spiritual, relational, emotional harm to you and others. Personally, we need to do it, and that is why Paul says, take heed how you build. You know, I'm led to believe that there's a post office department in the United States, and it's called Dead Letters. And whenever mail is missent or has a wrong address or no identification at all, it's sent to the dead letters office. On one occasion, one year in the United States, there was over 14 million letters that went to the dead letter department. It's called the National Return Centre, I believe in the UK, in Ireland. One out of a thousand letters that were sent ended up at the dead letters department. I firmly believe that there are dead letter Christians. What do I mean? I mean people who have never ever arrived at what God, God wants them to be. And actually, the scary thing is, that is the most common shape of a believer. Now, I know that we, cannot, we all cannot say that we've arrived. The Apostle Paul said, I've not taken hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of me. But what I'm talking about here is a certain extreme of maturity that God wants for everyone. Remember, the goal of God is to make us into the image of Jesus. And if that's not the strenuous direction of our life to become like the Lord, we've Moved away from this eternal perspective. I wonder, is that you? Is that me? Where are we up to? We've got to analyze ourselves. Are you a frustrated messenger of the good news? You're a letter that God has told you to go out and you've never gone out. You've never found your destination. You're sent, but maybe you haven't ever gone. You've been dispatched, but you've never arrived at your intended destination. And you're sitting here this morning, static and as a Christian with no purpose. That's why the Apostle Paul said the phrase, take heed how you build. Could it be that we need to start digging rather than start building? Do you need to start breaking up the old ground of the way you used to think, the way you used to live, rather than start building on the foundation of your confession of Jesus? Is this making sense? There are people in this church that I speak to, by the way, and I see a lot of them privately, regularly, who I know and I, I found myself weeping in the car with some as I've sat with them. I found them in uh, coffee shops and in my office. And I, I get ever, ever so emotional, not just with them, but privately away from them when I see how the Lord's hand is on their life and how they're privately going through the difficult journey of having the image of Christ formed in them through the difficult, narrow way of following Jesus. If that's you, keep on the road. Jesus has got so much for you. Let's go as quickly as we can through the last two points. So we've looked at the labour, the foundation, the need to excavate. Let's look at the materials now. Now, we're getting to the crux of the matter. So I know it's a longer one, but you really need to hear this. I don't want to do it in two weeks. Paul comes to us with the materials we ought to build with. Verse 12, if anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw... Note that those aren't one whole material, by the way. They are two types of materials. One of them is perishable, one of them is imperishable. He's not having a mixture of a building of a mud hut with a straw roof and a few jewels stuffed in the side like a kid's plasticine model. He's talking about the fact that you will either be building with that which lasts eternally or that which gets burned up at the judgment seat of Christ. When Paul wrote to Ephesus and when Paul wrote to Corinth, he knew that there was a great difference between the rich and the poor. A greater difference than there is today. The rich and the poor would live close to one another. The Corinthians would have known this who received this letter. They would have seen it every day. But the differentiation between their two houses was absolutely unbelievable. The rich would live in great houses of solid construction that contained marble, gold leaf, precious jewels, and all the rest. And then the poor would be in some kind of mud hut shack with walls of wood, With straw, stubble for installation. Uh, Insulation, I should have put installation. Bit of both. The image that Paul is giving us here is to the Corinthians who live in a situation like that. If there was a great fire, Corinthians, that went through the whole city of Corinth or went through the whole city of Ephesus, what would be left standing? They would have known innately that it would be the precious stones and the structures made of marble. So there are two classes. There are precious materials, stone, precious metal, and there are also those things of the earth that are worth nothing. You've got to build with one, Paul's saying, and not with the other. Paul is saying it's possible to have a life that's well founded on Jesus Christ, but he's badly built, so we need to take heed how we build and with what we build. So what are these materials? What do they represent We're not really told what they represent, but certain we can say this much, that gold, silver, and precious stones are imperishable objects. Then you go to the wood, the hay, and the stubble, you see that they are the opposite. They are perishable objects. Now, for imperishable objects like gold, silver, precious stones, listen to this, because this is a good point, and it leans on Paul's teaching. You have to go down under the surface of the earth like them, to find them you have to dig deep there's no easy access for these precious things there's no quick fix to get gold and silver and precious stones you have to hunt them out you have to dig up the ground and then when you dig up gold and silver and precious stones they then have to as Ashley's word said before have to be smelted and heated and refined so that they become truly valuable in their finished state they're very costly to people in this room they're very expensive materials but they're also durable and non-combustible when they go through fire they cannot listen they cannot be manufactured by man it's as if they're put in the earth as heavenly gifts from god That's why this illustration is so good from Paul. You find them, you discover these rare things by digging very deep. The the imperishable is found through sacrificial digging and when we find them, we've got to smelt them and refine them and trophy them because there's very few of them. Paul is making a point with this. And then you go to... The perishable objects, as a contrast, he's saying wood, hay and stubble. These are the things that are found on the surface of the earth. They're easy to access. There's many of them. Everywhere you go, there's a tree for wood. Everywhere you go, there's crops for wood, hay and stubble. You don't have to work very hard to get them. You just chop them down and they're there in your hand. And they do not last when they go through the fire. They're burned up. He's very clear of the difference between the materials. Do you see the depth of what the Apostle Paul is teaching here? Listen. If you really want something spiritual that will be able to withstand the judgment seat of Christ, the beamer seat, you have to dig deep in your spiritual life. You don't just take what's on the surface. Here's another point that's obvious. It will not be an easy journey. Jesus already said it's a narrow road. It's difficult. There are few that find it. But this is the kingdom. And you'll have to hunt these things out. You'll have to dig up the sin in your life. That's the excavation we spoke to, spoke about. You maybe have to go through the fire of testing, as Sue testified to this morning, and actually shared a word—the smelting pot. You have to be refined. It'll be costly for you. You know it's costly for you. Some of you in this room, you're feeling it right now. That's why Peter says we've been tested with many trials. Many and various trials that the genuineness of our faith, even though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, glory, and honor at the judgment, is his words, when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so the choice is yours. Paul is saying the best things are not always the easiest things to acquire. They cost you. You'll have to labor for them. You'll maybe even have to give much sacrifice to them. Think of anyone who's been an amazing sports, Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, there's a reason why they stayed at the top for so long. R9, Ronaldo, the first one, the Brazilian, could have been the greatest player, greatest striker, certainly, that's ever played. Sorry if this is going over some of your heads. It'll land with some of you. Diego Maradona, Paul Gascoigne, George Best. They blew it because they poured their life into alcohol, to drugs, to women, to things of temporary value, and eventually they didn't achieve with their life what their talent should have given them. But Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, they've been long in the tooth football-wise, best in their generation, maybe best ever, because of the sacrifice every day getting up. The endurance of Cristiano Ronaldo, every match he would get in the ice bath after the match. He'd massage with this machine on his muscles. He was so devoted to his cause. And the fruit is found where the root is. The behavior brings forth the man. And this is what the Apostle Paul, in a sense, is saying that you cannot live the Christian life the way Jesus wants you to without it being hard, without it being strenuous, without it costing you loads. But at the end of the day, it's all about the final judgment. Amen. This is the truth. On the other hand, the common things are never the best. They cost so little. They're no trouble to procure. And you can even weave them together, paint on them, thinking of wood. They seem attractive. They have lovely patterns. You can polish them into bright surfaces. But the final test that God will give these products is not the test of appearance, but the test of endurance. It's not how things look on the outside. Remember, God looks on the heart but the substance of the things that will be tested by fire on the last day. We're so quick to judge one another. Let God be judge in every man. Stand back in Jesus' name. It says, judge not and you yourselves will not be judged. I hope you'd agree with me when when I say that these perishable objects are in the majority, but imperishable objects are in the minority. There's the picture. D.L. Moody said this, he would rather weigh his converts then count his converts. In other words, how deep are they? How heavy are they? Of what substance are they? We live in a democracy in this country, but I want to tell you with regards to spiritual matters, on the best issues, the majority are usually wrong. If you want the deep spiritual life, if you want to stand up and endure in the furnace of the judgment seat of Christ, I'm urging you in the spirit of Paul, which is the spirit of God, to choose with care to take care as you build on this foundation which has already been laid, which is Jesus because there are a few people only even in the church today who have the courage to live with this eternal perspective day by day it is a minority lifestyle finally and I know it's been a long one but I have to do it all in one the divine inspection I want to read a translation to you by a guy called Arthur S. Way on verses 13 to 15 he said this The great day shall make it plain and the revealing agent is fire. Yes, what is the true quality of each man's work? That fire, nothing less, shall test. If any man's structure which he has reared in the aforesaid foundation stands the test, he shall receive his work's wages. But if anyone's structure shall be burnt to the ground, he shall thus forfeit his life's work, though he himself shall be rescued. Now mark this. Yet only as one who is dragged through the flames of a burning house dragged out through the flames of a burning house now this is serious stuff isn't it I want you just to imagine and come with me for a moment to a moment in eternity no one knows where no one knows when when you will be shut out to all the realization of anything but the holiness and all seeing eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ on your own scrutinizing your life's work and everything that you've done in his name, just you and him, and you're naked in your soul before him, and your life's work is being reviewed. Paul says every man's work will be scrutinized. Now, not the man. The man will be saved. Remember we've said that. Your salvation and your sin is a done deal. But salvation is something that is received, but your works are something that will be rewarded. And this is what Paul is talking about. One day at the judgment seat of Christ, the fire will come down for every one of us. For God is a consuming fire and whatever is perishable will burn and whatever is imperishable will stand. The fire, by the way, is not there to cleanse or to purge our works. It's there to try and test our works. We don't believe in purgatory in this church. And it will destroy whoever and to destroy whatever is perishable. Paul says that our life's work will be rewarded in verse 14 if your works abide in the flamethrower test. Listen, let's get personal this morning. How are you building? Stay with me, don't get distracted. This is important for your soul for eternity. It's worth giving an extra 10, 15 minutes to what's normal for you. How are you building? How are you building... What will stand? What will fall? What will be burnt up? Or will you stand there on that day and feel lost? What will be lost? You'll not be lost, by the way. Let's repeat that again. It says that you will be saved in the scriptures. But imagine what it would be to see all your labor for Christ, all your possessions that you thought you'd achieve for Him, and all the fruit of your labor burned up before the holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ. A saved soul. But a lost life. Now, we're talking here about everything that you should do as a Christian should be done in obedience of following the Lord and His Spirit to please the King, not people. As Christian leaders, sometimes decisions you make are not understood by the people, but you know you give an account to God, not the people. And you just obey the Lord. That's the key to be a Christian, that's the key to be a Christian leader. These are the children of God, those who are led by the Spirit of God. Not led by the popularity of man, not led by the assumption of the culture, but led by the Spirit of God. Listen, there's no glory in such a lost, lost life, a saved soul but a lost life. There's no glory in such an end. But I'm telling you this upon the scripture passage we've just read. Not the end of salvation for you, that's not what we're talking about, but the end of your building. Do you know what this picture is? Fireballs from heaven rained down upon your little house that you've laboriously built and constructed by yourself. And you're within it. And all of a sudden, you're overwhelmed by a sudden burst of flame. And you decide you better escape. You escape down a blazing corridor and get out just about by the skin of your teeth. Is that the way we, you, I want to go out before the Lord and be saved as one escaping through fire? because that's the image that Paul's writing here. Let me say this morning: it's not a matter of misfortune, it's a matter of privilege and responsibility. That won't come upon you suddenly, it's a choice you'll make in this life. Imagine this for a moment, that you are literally putting into the, the, the mouth of Jesus the sentence, the word by word sentence of judgment that the Lord will read out to you on that very day, that he will say to you on judgment day, through the way you're living now. You're adding the words to his mouth. I'm adding the words to his mouth. You're telling him now what he'll say then. This is why I'm willing to go on. It's so important for all of us. He'll say it's in your control. That's what he might mentor us with now to define what your end will be before eternity. You're manufacturing as a servant of Jesus his own adjudication for that moment. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, we'll look at that later. He says, if we judge ourselves, we'll not be judged. It's time to take a healthy assessment of individuals. There's a lot of criticism, a lot of gossip, a lot of personal angst towards leaders and others in this church and other churches all around the world following COVID. That's because people have lost sight of the judgment seat of Christ for them as an individual. All of that would go. Because there's no place in scripture for gossip, for criticism, for bitterness, for angst, for division, for dispute. Only honour, obedience, love, faithfulness and so on. And the judgment seat of Christ would level everything. Let me land this because I know it's been a long message but it's important to get it out. Can you imagine this for one second that somewhere in the universe... Perhaps existing in the mind of God, there is a draft that says what you could have been for Jesus. Blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, given a measure of the Spirit and all of his fullness, that you could be filled with all the fullness of God and have the glorious power of his resurrection that brought him back from the dead. All of this at your disposal and God knows what you could have been. And he will judge you through Jesus Christ on that day according to what you've become rather than what you could have been. Chopin, the composer on one occasion in a concert which no one knew was full of mistakes, had a standing ovation from the audience because the audience couldn't tell there was mistakes. But there was one man in the audience that wasn't clapping at Chopin's concert, and that was Verdi, his old instructor and teacher. Why? Because Verdi knew about Chopin's mistakes in that performance no one else could see it they were oblivious they were giving the guy a real good clap but Verdi knew it and he could see it in the service that you and I give for the Lord Jesus Christ maybe other people can't see it and we're calling their bluff but there's a day coming when every man will give an account of the secret things of their life and it will be made manifest in the sight of God here's one for the people to be encouraged as I'm landing it you might say Stephen My chance is gone. This is prophetic, by the way, for some people in this room. I missed it. My life is gone. I had to look after someone who was ill and I couldn't do what I wanted to do for the Lord Jesus. Circumstances have changed my life. Listen, this morning to the Lord Jesus Christ, the woman that came to Jesus' feet and wept at his feet and dried his tears with her hair and anointed him with ointment, what did the Lord say to that woman? She, here's a good news bit, has done what she could. My question to you is, and this is where the rubber hits the road, and this is it. Have you done what you could? That nails it in one question. Have you done what you could? Not what you would like to do or what you would aspire to be. Have you done what you could with what you had? That's where we'll be judged. Listen to the words of Jesus. She has wrought a good work on me because she did what she could. Now, I've not been able to, you might not believe this, I've not been able to share what's on, all of what's on my heart this morning, but I'll leave you with the words of George Whitfield, And this is the phrase I want to close with. George Whitfield said, oh, I want to live for eternity, preach for eternity, pray for eternity, and speak for eternity. I want to see only God in this life.